Once again, I want to uh, introduce my guest. Dr. Gunga Dean is a distinguished professor of philosophy at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. And his lifelong study and passion has been to clarify the common ground at the heart of human reason and to promote a deeper dialogue to bring forth a more integral and holistic global consciousness, which can remedy the apocalyptic fervor associated with our fragmented world. He is the founder of the Global Dialogue Institute, which seeks an integral approach to a new holistic model of education with teachers. He is also co-founder of the World Commission on Global Consciousness and Spirituality, which includes uh, Professor Laszlo and, and Desmond Tutu and Hazel Henderson and Jane Goodall and Dalai Lama. And um, so he's in good company. He is also the author of many books, including Awakening the Global Mind, and uh, he's with us now. Nice to have you with us today. Hi there, Gary. A pleasure to be with you again. Uh, let me just give you a couple areas and just run with it, all right? Okay. I would like for you to talk about the fact that today the average person is accepting that we should have corporate dominance within our lives as if we are not able to make important, proper, reasoned decisions on our own and also how that corporate dominance has affected and infected the body politic, that the politician that you are, are voting for more often than not is not listening to what you need, but rather making sure that the corporatists get their needs, whether it's in health care or the military-industrial complex. And then finally, I'm seeing a reemergence of a fanatical right, fundamentalistic, religious, racist, totalitarian type of agendas the militarism of society, the superstitious thought, like the, the Christian um, apocalyptic views. Would you address these, please? Well, that's quite a rich and complex question, Gary, as you usually ask. <clears throat> oh, by the way, I love the comments you were making uh, of the earlier segments. I was listening on the earlier part of the show uh, about uh, the athlete and the commodification. And what I see as a philosopher here at Haverford College for over 42 years uh, working, as you said in the introductory remarks, about oh, pioneering global consciousness and wisdom is relevant to what you're asking about uh, the state of the individual person, the sacred person in our culture and the dominant forces surrounding us in all kinds of ways. And the corporate dominance that you're inquiring uh, about is just one symptom of a ge generic malaise in which the sacred individual according to all our great wisdom teachers on the planet, <clears throat> is really a, a being eclipsed. And if we could step back from privileging whatever culture or discipline uh, you're coming at this with, or lens, a uh, fundamentalist lens, a right-wing perspective, whatever it may be, uh, the great wisdom teachers for over 3,000 years across the planet, they saw something remarkable. If you could step back from a local lens and go into a more dilated space, where you could say, what is Buddha teaching? What comes out of Abraham, Moses, Jesus? What comes out of Lao Tzu? What comes out of Krishna in the Gita? Just to mention a few uh, exemplars. They all saw right to the core that if we're living in a state of consciousness, which, they might, which I use the word ego-mental for, and, and I think that speaks to the point you were making earlier, the ego-mental mind is an adolescent stage of our development of culture-making, world-making, self-making, and language-making. And our consciousness 
is a primary technology where we make our world. And if you're lodged in ego mental thinking, there's something about that state of technology of thought and consciousness that severs you from connectivity. And that's what I love about what you're doing. You're seeing that the human being who is interconnected and surfing the deep connectivity of the holistic field of reality, which all of our great wisdom teachers recognized, and they saw the disconnect between humanity struggling in a disconnected, myopic lens of whatever the culture, religion, ideology they may have. That leads to a kind of dominance of a culture. So that the question I would uh, pose to our listeners is uh, in, in the great experiment, the sacred experiment of America, uh, opening a d democratic space, we the people uh, hold the power. Uh, in terms of the European Enlightenment vision of awakened re reason, where if we, if we participate as rational beings, we all share in that uh, birthright of freedom and, and, and one voice, one vote, and so forth. But we still carry that ego mental technology. We bring it across the, the, the oceans from different lands. We gather here. Of course, the American Revolution, its earlier phase of overthrowing the British colonial dominance uh, was a vital stage. But that was just the beginning of the work because the deeper revolution is to grow up and mature in light of the wisdom of our teachers to become a holistic, integral dialogue being, not a monologue, ego-log being. So the we, the people, can't be a we, the sacred individual. It's not able to step into that sacred space of the civic, open American uh, public space that we long for and our founding fathers and mothers envisioned for us. Uh, so here in Philadelphia, I'm in a Quaker college, and the Quakers are part of that sacred individual. So you don't let any external dominant force, whether it's an ideology or uh, a certain cultural uh, perspective that becomes cultic, that all compromises the sacred individual. And the vitality of our American dream and democracy turns upon our standing our ground as sacred individuals. And I love that you really are pressing this point, that the interconnected, awakened human being is not the same as the one that's in a box dominated by forces stemming from ego-mental culture-making. So the corporate dominance, militarism, the, the industrial complex, uh, even an educational regime that is still lodged in ego-mental, the many form of dominance that compromises that individual conscience and free voice, which is vital for our well-being. So that's just a preliminary response to say that if we follow global wisdom and listen to the, the, the great teachers on the planetary scale and to our founding vision, then the question you're asking gets right to the heart of it. Your, your comments are very similar to what I've heard from uh, Professor Joan Borenchenko and also Bruce Lipton. Bruce, I just interviewed down in New Zealand on this. Isn't it interesting how so many people have who are compassionate and spiritual have an interweaving thought process that is so much in alignment. Could you take that another step further, please, and discuss what happens in the duality of the public, the, the public as a whole, wanting something to happen in their lives that they feel that at this moment they're not able to grapple with alone. They need support. Person's losing their job. A person's not making enough money at the job they have. A person's lost their home. A person um, is out of college and can't repay their loan. Is unemployed and is getting hit 
Uh, credit card interest rates were not capped, so the credit card companies can charge anything they want. So every place a person looks, the very government that was supposed to be helping them, protecting their interests, is part of the more predatory nature. So on the one hand, we have a predatory, uh, a predatory mindset. Look at it in Wall Street. Even Wall Street firms ate their own. It was the Wall Street firms shorting Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch that brought them both down. Uh, and now uh, Wall Street firms like uh, Goldman Sachs that put Greece in a, 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 a financial pickle is also going to be there exploiting the downfall of Greece. So everywhere we look, we are looking at predators. As if every every block we walk down the streets of, there's someone looking to see how they might exploit us. They can commodify things in such a way that the price of oil, the price of food, the price of water is beyond what most people can reasonably afford. The price of rent, if you're a, a, re, a, a small business person, is exploited. That's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation are those people like yourself and many others who believe that we should be looking at how can we help a person succeed instead of how can we exploit their weaknesses? How can we make a system better, more accountable, instead of finding ways to, to take any protections that system had away, like taking away the Glass-Steagall Act, um, so people could then, uh, uh, banks could then exploit uh, their capacity to understand derivatives and credit default swaps. So show us that there, there, there's two ways of looking at a problem and two ways of approaching a problem with the mindset of the predator and the mindset of the healer, the reformer. Could you show us that? Because that takes us from ego in one into a more uh, humanistic uh, mindset in the other. Wonderful question, Gary. And I, of course, I'm working with Bruce Lipton. I'm part of a group called Evolutionary Leaders. Uh, not as an arrogant sense that we are the leaders, but to realize that there is an evolutionary shift taking place at the heart of humanity in our birthing as full mature human beings in line with our spiritual global wisdom on the planet. Bruce Lipton is one of uh, my friends in this, the Dalai Lama is on this group as you mentioned, Jane Goodall, Hazel Henderson, many others. And what's amazing, you ask again in a great complex question, uh, but coherent, why, why is there a convergence among, among these, whether you call them progressives or awakening teachers or whatever term you'd like to use, they see, whether scientists or spiritual teachers, there is a deep science that is at the heart of, of the insight that, hey, folks, we are deeply interconnected with one another. We are not atomically severed, ego-mental, monocentric beings. We are interconnected humans, and that's the heart of humanity. Where did they get this from? Where did Buddha get the insight in his Four Noble Truths when he had his Great Awakening? That ego is the source of suffering, it has a cause clinging to your ego identity, which leads to the predatory dominance model, the basis of scarcity and com competition in that negative sense of dog-eat-dog -dog in the dog-eat-dog marketplace, uh, that kind of mentality, that is part deeply ingrained in the ego-mental view of the human being and a scarcity model. But Buddha saw that if we can, we have a choice into waking up to this integral holistic calculus, which is what? That everything is flowing into everything else. There are no fragmented, severed pieces. Jesus saw the same law. He, he said it in many ways. Uh, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. Uh, and his disciples speaking the old language, and when did we do this? And he repeated, when, when, I, when you visited the least of mine, you visited me. Why? 
again, because we are dialogue beings, interconnected, interwoven in the deepest fabric of reality. Again, why? Well, Krishna saw it in the Bhagavad Gita, in the science of yoga, that, that the deepest field of reality, whether you call it Om or Yahweh or Tao or emptiness, Shunyata in the Buddhist name for it, or Allah, whatever name you use for the infinite, it's very simple calculus, very simple literacy. The infinite must be one. You can't have more than one infinite because it wouldn't be infinite. What follows then? Well, if the infinite is infinite unity, then everything is in a deep confluence. That's the objective field of reality. It's holistic, which means what? That the ego mind and ego mental ways of thinking can't fathom and surf interconnectivity. You need a higher, powerful, rational, integral calculus of the mind. That's what Buddha's fourth noble truth is, that the way to cultivate being in sync with reality or Zen, entering Zen now or the yoga now, or the Christ consciousness, whatever name you'd like to use, the key to that is really uh, breaking out of the ego boxes that contain us, that makes our world, our personal identity, that separates us into suffering and despair and nihilism and predatory behavior. What do you find then if you can grow up and mature into the holistic integral calculus, which is a higher form of integral literacy? You experience yourself in the other. You experience yourself in nature, with the sacredness of nature, that the spaces we live is all sacred. Each other, we are all sacred. The Quakers knew that. Is that of God in every man, every person, every woman. Uh, the Blake, the poet, saw this in, in, infinity in a grain of sand, or the mustard seed. What's going on in the science here? It is recognizing that every PowerPoint within the unified field I call it the logosphere because using the Greek word for the logos, the infinite force, the infinite word, the infinite presence, every piece of Om or Tao or Yahweh or logos encodes the infinite. What does that mean? It means that there's a higher economics, not egonomics, based upon ego uh, atavistic thinking, but based upon logos, the logonomics. And that leads right into your point that if we could mature into an integral culture, an awakened American culture, let's say, a global culture, in which we celebrate the sacredness of life with, with each other, within ourselves, between each other, and in the common civic space, and with nature and other species, and with the aloe you're speaking about earlier, which is a part of the sacredness of, of, of the substances of nature, if you, if you call it uh, properly, uh, that, that, that is really what's at the heart of it. So there are two models, as you say, of two consciousnesses uh, of how are we going to conduct our culture and our lives and ourselves and our well-being, in the ego-mental, monocentric uh, scarcity model or in the integral, holistic, dialogic, sacred model of logonomics rather than egonomics. And if we could practice and see that our democracy, everything we tre treasure, the sacred individual, the pursuit of freedom, free speech, uh, pursuit of well-being. The consensus of our wisdom teaches is you can't find well-being in the ego mental space or culture. It's not sustainable. It's going to disintegrate. And we're facing all forms of that kind of disintegrated behavior in terms of the predatory marketplace that is imploding around us. So to me, looking at the, the global lens at what's going on, it's an exciting possibility, as the Chinese say, crisis means opportunity, 
we have the opportunity to mature as a culture into a civic space that's whole, where we can really dialogue with each other, sacred diversity, we want differences, honor differences, to respect diversity, but without giving up e pluribus unum, the possibility of a unity of a community for we the people. And that's the kind of shift that I think is facing us at this crisis moment in our culture. Very nice insight. My last question for you, uh, for this part of our discussion, uh, and take your time. Um, our next guest is running late, so we will have about an additional five minutes um, uh, from now, so you, you're not rushed. The President of the United States, like the President of any corporation, CEO of any corporation, is limited into who they can speak with in any given day. And therefore, they surround themselves with advisors. And I'm sure with the hope that those advisors already are in alignment with their basic philosophy, how they see the world. So they surround themselves with people who see the world through the same prism as do they. Now, that means that if you're not of that mindset of how you see a problem, then you can be a well-intentioned person but end up making disastrous choices uh, because... Uh, you're not helping solve the problem. You can actually be contributing to it. So if you were to sit down today with, uh, for example, the President of the United States, and you were to say, look, there are some things here that, um, that you should maybe look at differently. For example, your war on terror has allowed many of our rights to be eroded. You just re-signed the Patriot Act, which doesn't allow for habeas corpus. So a basic uh, function that you're allowed to face your con uh, accusers, you're allowed to get the evidence uh, to know what you're charged with, that's gone. Um, that We shouldn't be a nation that tortures people, but we do. And we, we are still torturing at Bagram and other places. We lied and said we didn't do this. Then when it was found we did do this, and but no one's changed anything. You say that you want to help the American public, the ones who are suffering. You say, I feel your pain. Bill Clinton used to say, I feel your pain. Well, why didn't you write an executive order that would uh, put a uh, moratorium on helm foreclosure so at least for a period of six months people wouldn't be thrown out in the street or to wherever they would go? Uh, you could do that. But all the advice he's getting is just the opposite. When banks are going to go through another major round of defaults, and why? Because the people came in at a 4 or 5% mortgage, now it's a double click. It's going to 6% from 6 to 8%. And if they're late, then it goes up higher. So instead of saying to the banks, hold on a second. Let's give these people a break. After all, you got the money, uh, Citicorp or Bank of America, for zero interest from the federal window. You're making 4 or 5 or 600% profit. Give these people a break. The mindset is... No, they either pay it or throw them out, and we take back the home and sell it all over again. So everywhere you look, the military-industrial complex, the, um, the nuclear industries, the oil industries, the gas industries, the coal industries, they're sitting at the table, but the solar is not, the geothermal is not, the wind power are not. The organic people are not there, but, the bio, but, but, but the, to provide biodiversity, um, but you have plenty of people from... Cargill and Monsanto and DuPont sitting there with genetic in engineered suicide seeds, terminator seeds, can only be used once. So people around the world are going to starve to death without question because they won't be able to grow seeds historically as they used to by harvesting the seeds from one year and plant another. So every possible solution right now is being negated 
maybe with the best of intents, but because people are not hearing a voice outside of the voice of the people around them that mirrors their voice, which does not in any way, shape, or form reflect the real needs of the voices of the average American public. So if you were to sit there and speak on behalf of those people, if you were the voice of the voiceless, if you were the person of reason where there is no reason, what would you say to the president about our major issues today? Wow, what a great question again. Uh, and I've thought about that myself, in fact. I have a feeling that at some point I will have a moment to uh, express this voice uh, with our present. I am very optimistic, by the way, with the shift. When During the campaign, I began to see signs. I listened very carefully. Uh, thinking of the signs of our times that we need an upgrade in our culture along the lines we were speaking about a moment ago from the, uh, an outmoded, atavistic, dysfunctional, uh, dominant mindset or lens of the mind or the culture to shift to a more hu- humanistic, awakened, integral, uh, mutual care uh, model based upon the great wisdom of our planet and in, in sync with the founding of this nation. And uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the, the, the plight that this president is in because we know that the, the present dominant regime, even though there may be an intention to shift Washington and the mantra, yes, we can, we can change, people are now becoming a bit disgruntled when they feel, well, where is the change? Where is the executive intervention and leadership along these lines? And despite the fact that uh, President Obama made a radical move, in a way, to open up dialogue with the uh, with the uh, other, you know, with the with the Muslim world, uh, you know, to open up that rather than a uh, fight terror with terror model. That was a very good sign. Any sign towards genuine open dialogue is opening the civic space and the global, uh, you know, human space. And there are signs that this president wishes uh, to move in that direction, but highly constrained by the dominant inertia of the political regime that keeps moving in the older ways. And so your, your, your observation that is he, is he close-minded towards listening to the voice of the everyday person who's making a plea for shift and real change? I think he is open, and that gives me encouragement. Our, one of the groups I'm working with, the uh, evolutionary leaders, are in a presently precisely an outreach to get the ear of the president in order to advise him in terms of the wisdom of consciousness awakening and, and global wisdom, that this must somehow be, be factored in as a major priority factor in the crises we face in this nation and on this planet that this president faces. So as a voice for that interest, had I this opportunity, I feel I would be speaking to a friendly, open-minded president, but one who is nevertheless strapped and hamstrung with the, the old the dominant regimes and, and money uh, interests and special interests and so forth. And I'm sympathetic. How, how, how would anyone cope to survive as president, to be effective in the old paradigm forces and structure with a new paradigm lens? So I would just uh, find uh, some way to help make, connect the dots that the founding of this nation is in question in the sense of it depends upon growing up and maturing as an awakened, rational being with an integral, holistic, sacred space, civic space that we don't have. And the ordinary person is squelched by the the forces of the old ways. And I I would seek 
any way to marshal the voices that we're speaking of, which is many voices in this nation, many awakening voices, who would see the importance of revising uh, that, that yes we can, yes we can change, right? That We're all waiting for that. Where is this change? How is it going to come? Something has to shift. You're absolutely right. And I have a feeling that he would welcome uh, listening to these voices uh, and bringing them uh, into his uh, immediate vicinity to, to hold that space that you're speaking of. Let us hope that that is the case. And I look forward to the time when you're able to sit with Obama and the people around Obama to give him a different perspective. We're out of time. Thank you very much for taking your time and sharing it with us today. Professor Ashcock Gangadeen, G-A-N-G-A-D-E-A-N. He is a part of our Conversations with Remarkable Minds. I'm Gary Knoll.